How important is the church in your life? The fact that you've tuned in this morning, the fact that you've made it this far through the online service means that the church is reasonably central for you, but I wonder how important the church really is in your life. I was converted in 1995, I got married in 1997, and my wife Mary would say that the church is the second most important thing in her life. Now, I never asked her for a number of years what the most important thing was. I, I obviously assumed, you know, that would be me until uh, I actually was brave enough to ask her and it turned out it wasn't me at all. That it was her salvation that was the most important and the church is the second most important thing in her life. This morning, from Ephesians 3, we're going to learn about the central place that the church has in God's eternal scheme of things. We're going to hear about the church, we're going to hear about the gospel, and we're going to hear about God's eternal plan. So let's just pause for prayer and ask for God's enabling spirit to speak his truth to us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And I pray now for my brothers and sisters who are listening, I pray for myself as I articulate this truth, Lord, that you would give us a revelation of your gospel, you would give us a revelation of your church. I pray in Jesus' name. So we're reading from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning uh, at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me to you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets." The mystery of Christ that's been revealed to Paul. Now, Paul uses this word three times uh, in these verses. In verses 3, 4, and 9, he talks about the mystery of Christ. Now, the word that he's using, when we think of mystery, we think of something that is perhaps unknown, something perhaps that is unknowable, obscure. But the word that he's using there is more of an open secret. It's a truth that has been revealed by God. Palm Sunday is a good example of that. We're celebrating Palm Sunday where a mystery of who Jesus was and what he had come to accomplish was beginning to be revealed to the people in Jerusalem. The secret of his ministry was now becoming a revelation for all of Jerusalem to understand. That's kind of the concept that Paul is talking about here. This mystery has been revealed to him. And Paul is saying here in these first couple of verses that he has a central part in revealing the truth of that mystery. He says the letter that he writes is a key part in granting the Ephesian church an understanding of this mystery the mystery of Christ. How did they come to know it? Well, he says in verse 6 that it is through the gospel that this mystery is revealed. Look at verse 6. The mystery is that through the gospel, 
the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. This gospel, very familiar word, most of us are very aware that gospel literally means good news. But what is this good news? It's significant, I think. For those of you who were here last week and the week before, we've been hearing about how Paul describes the relationship that we have with the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and the Jews. How that separation has been broken down in Christ. This word gospel, euangelion, that he uses here, has both a Hebrew background, but it also has a pagan Greco-Roman history. So firstly, let's consider the Hebrew background. The first time that we come across this word goes all the way back to Isaiah 40 verse 9. In Isaiah 40, the prophet talks to the people of Israel who were in exile. And he announces that their sins have been paid for, that her king comes in power, that their exile has completed. And then he says in verse 9, he says, You who bring good news to Zion, you and Galeon, it's the same word. So that's the, the Hebrew background of an understanding of this word. It's the rescue of, the, of God's people who are in exile bringing them that back and saying that your God is here, your sins have been paid for, your exile is complete. But remember, Paul is talking and writing this letter to a pagan audience. He's writing to the letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus. They also understood this word, euangelion, because the Roman authorities would use it in a couple of specific situations. If Caesar had come back from a great victory he would announce the good news of his victory. He would announce the gospel of his victory. Also, if a Roman emperor gave birth to a child, the good news, the gospel, would be announced of the birth of this child. It's significant. Both of those two threads, uh, the Hebrew understanding and the pagan understanding, are in behind why Paul is using this word, the gospel. Through the gospel, he says, verse 6, the mystery of Christ is revealed. Notice he says that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. So they are heirs. The Gentiles are now sharers in the inheritance that God's people had, the Israelites. That's the first thing he says. Secondly, he says they are now members of the one body. Remember we heard last week that the dividing wall has been broken down. They are members of one body. And thirdly, he says they are sharers in the promise. Now, this gospel, this good news, is an announcement that the promises God made to Abraham all those years and generations before has now been fulfilled in the life, in the death, in the resurrection, and significantly in the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Those promises have been now fulfilled in one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The promises being that through one man, all the nations, all peoples, all families would be blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel, Paul says, 
he has come to be a servant. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages was kept past, was kept hidden in God who created all things. So Paul says he's become a servant of this gospel. He's become a minister. That word, diakonos, a minister. This is the, this is the title that I, I take for myself uh, as a minister of the gospel in Hope Church. Paul says he came as a minister to serve this gospel, to preach to the Gentiles, to announce this good news. What does he announce to them? Well, firstly, he announces the boundless riches in Christ. And as we've been hearing about those riches in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we've heard about the forgiveness of sins. We've heard about the riches of resurrection power that's now available to us that we can be enthroned with Christ in the heavenly places, that we can know peace, that we can know membership in God's household. These are the boundless riches in Christ that Paul is talking about here. Infinite, immeasurable riches that are in Christ. He goes on to say that he's been called to make plain the administration of this mystery. Literally, to bring into the light, to enlighten the Gentiles, if you were. That's a central part of Paul's calling. And it actually goes all the way back to his conversion back on the road to Emmaus. For those of you who know the story, Paul, who would say he was the least of the least of the Israelite people because of the way he persecuted the church. But then he had this dramatic encounter with the Lord Jesus. Remember, back in Acts 9, he's on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appears to him and he says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul is struck blind, but Jesus significantly gives him this commission. And the commission is to go and preach to the Gentiles. And he uses these words, he says, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Now Paul's going back to that commission that he had from the Lord Jesus when he sees these, says these words that he's come to make plain, to enlighten the administration of this mystery. So verse 8 is all about the place that Christ has in this administration of the gospel. Verse 9 is the place that the church has. It is the mystery that has been revealed. Verse 10, 10, he says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So we come to the central place that Paul has in this revelation from God, the central place that the church has in God's eternal plan. What is the church? Well, it's fascinating to me again that this word that he uses, again, has a Hebrew background. It also has a pagan background, ecclesia. 
It was a very familiar word for Paul's Ephesian hearers in the city of Ephesus. It simply meant a public assembly where the people are called out by an authority figure. They are called out publicly to assemble, the ecclesia. And actually, if we go back to Acts 19, we see this very word used that's translated church here. This very word is used of the Ephesians people. Remember in Acts 19, they're in this riot and Paul only escapes uh, by the skin of his teeth. It's an ecclesia that is mentioned in Acts 19, this public assembly that are called out. It also has a Jewish background, meaning the congregation of God's people, uh, the called out ones who gathered at Sinai. So both of those understandings, the pagan understanding and the Hebrew understanding, uh, are involved in this word that we now translate the church. So the three key aspects of it, that they are called out, that they are public, and that they are assembled. These are aspects of what it means to be church. So Paul says this manifold wisdom has been known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This is the role of the church. You and I gathered, although we're in our homes, we do so publicly online this morning, but when we gather publicly, we are making known in the heavenly realms to the rulers and authorities the ultimate rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are making known, Paul says, the eternal purposes of God which were accomplished in Christ Jesus. This, Paul is saying, is now worked out through the church. Do you, do you hear and catch the significance of the church in God's eternal purposes. Paul goes on to say that in him, through faith in him, we may now approach God with freedom and confidence. What a great gift. The writer to Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 4. We can now approach God because of the Lord Jesus, because of what he has done. We can approach him with confidence and we can approach him with freedom. Remember last week we talked about the dividing wall of the Jerusalem temple, how there was a physical wall between the pagans, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and those that could enter into the presence of God. It was only the high priest, and only once a year, who could enter the Holy of Holies and meet with God. But now, post-Calvary, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can, Paul says, enter into the holy presence of our Heavenly Father, with freedom and confidence. What a great gift. What a great gift. So this eternal purpose, the central purpose of the Lord Jesus, the central purpose of the church is now ours as we gather. The eternal purpose accomplished in Jesus is now being worked out through the church. So I want to ask you the question again, how important is the church in your life? How important is the church in your life? If I wanted to think of this uh, pictorially, I would think of a dartboard. And if you think of the dartboard, at the center is, is the central point. And that's the bullseye. And Jesus Christ is the bullseye of our faith. But the next outer circle is the church. That's how central the church is. Everything else in our lives, our family, our work, 
our recreation, everything else is secondary and is in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who is the bullseye, but it is the church that is the center point. Do you love the church? Well, the Lord Jesus certainly loves the church. The scriptures talk about the bride of Christ and that's us, the church. So this morning, Paul reminds us from Ephesians 3 that the church is at the center of God's eternal purposes. The question for you and I this morning is, is that the place, is that the understanding that we have? May it be so. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for reminding us from this third chapter of Ephesians just how central your church is to your eternal purposes. And as we gather this morning in our homes and around the country and around the globe, we acknowledge that we are making known the revelation that you have accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for myself, for my household, I pray for our church, I pray for everyone listening, that you would give us a fresh revelation of the central place of the eternal purposes that you have for your church. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.